Hi, I'm Liz Winstead. I'm Mojiella Wodeal. And we're the hosts of Feminist Buzzkills, the only weekly podcast that helps you navigate the post-row hellscape. We dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with our guests, the abortion providers and activists working on the ground. Plus, we have amazing comedians to help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills drops Fridays wherever you get your pod fix. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. M-S-W Media. This week, former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to the crime of lying to Congress. He made that guilty plea as part of a cooperation agreement with special counsel Robert Mueller. That guilty plea comes in the wake of serious developments in the Mueller investigation. Trump's lawyers revealed that they learned confidential information about Mueller's investigation from Manafort's attorneys while Paul Manafort was cooperating. Yet none of this appears to be slowing down Mueller. The charges against Cohen reveal explosive details regarding Trump's effort to complete a deal for Trump Tower Moscow with the aid of the Russian government while he was running for president. What does this mean for the Trump presidency? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. So, Patty, I have to tell you, after losing a lot of sleep this week, uh, staying up late to write an op-ed for Politico magazine, I thought, finally, I I got to sleep in a little bit today, uh, went to the gym, and I'm like, oh, it's going to be a a bit of a relaxing day. Sure. The big news already happened earlier in the week. So I thought. All done. Dusted off. and, And that's the thing. Even when we did our podcast the other day, within hours... Uh, more news came out and we're like, OK, well, I mean, how do you stay on top of everything? Exactly right. So we had um, a, a podcast earlier this week with with uh, Joyce fans, who's fantastic. Um, our our highest rated podcast ever. We, we reached the top 150 in the charts, which was great. Um, the bar's been set. The bar's been set. Um, and yet, as you point out, there was news that came out within hours of that podcast being and released. And that was that Giuliani had been talking to Manafort's team, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly right. And all the implications of that. So to discuss that and to discuss the Michael Cohen uh, plea deal, so much stuff, so much stuff uh, I am bringing in my friend Asha Rengapa. Uh, Asha is... Um, a former classmate of mine from Yale Law School. She is a former FBI counterintelligence agent, uh, and she's a current CNN legal analyst and a professor at Yale. So she has um, all sorts of titles and is an extremely gifted and intelligent commentator on these issues. All right. Well, Asha, I am so glad you're here. Thank you for joining us again as our second repeat uh, guest on this podcast. (laughs) Thanks for having me. All right. I feel honored. Well, yeah, thank you. Uh, You were so popular the first time. 
And <laughs> I, I, we've, we have quite a day and a, a lot of news to discuss here, and I want to cut to the thick of it. So there is this um, plea agreement that Michael Cohen entered into. It's his second plea agreement. This one's a cooperation deal, which is significant. Um, but he also, you know, there's also a, a charge that he pled to lying to Congress that contains a lot of details uh, in there. And, I, you know, what do you think the important details were to glean from that charging document? OK, so the details concern Cohen's testimony to Congress regarding a business proposition uh, referred to as the Trump Tower Moscow deal, I guess, let's call it, um, that he was handling for Trump with uh, the Russian government uh, using an intermediary, intermediary, that intermediary being Felix Sater. And he lied about the relevant dates uh, during which this business deal was being negotiated. He told Congress that the deal started and eventually just broke down or fizzled out and was done by January of 2016. And in fact, according to the information that was filed by Mueller today, uh, that those negotiations carried on through June of 2016. The reason this matters is because January to June of 2016 is when the Trump campaign was in full swing, going through the primaries, ultimately culminating in his nomination for the Republican Party. And so this matters because it reveals that Trump had basically a financial interest in a foreign power during the time that he is conducting this campaign, that this interest was not disclosed to the public and was potentially impacting his position on Russia and also actions that were taken, for example, the RNC platform on Ukraine. So that's kind of the big picture. The other picture is that Trump has just recently submitted his own answers to Mueller's questions. And if he was asked about this and his answers were, you know, a part of the original story, which is that all this ended in January, then he can be on the hook for making false statements to Mueller. Yeah, I think that's a very good overview. I can tell that you've said this on CNN a couple of times <laughs> already today because it's so well uh, put together and, pre- and 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 thoughtfully presented. Now, but let let's talk. I want to kind of break down a few of those things for folks. So, sure. the, the first part of what you said, you talked about, for example, the financial interest in the foreign in a foreign power and an adversary of the United States and Russia, and Correct. the potential impact that would have in a platform. Those are what I'll call the, the I, I, I would term sort of very um, important uh, objects of a counterintelligence investigation. In other words, um, the United States is interested in knowing what foreign powers are doing and their um, their um, their influence over people in the United States and what they're up to. Um, that but that doesn't necessarily have a criminal component, and we kind of you kind of talked about that in the second part. Is that a fair way of 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 of, uh, of talking about those two pieces? Yes, I mean I think that there is definitely the counterintelligence part of it. I would add in there um, one more that I'm not sure where it fits in, but maybe just a you know a democratic principle of transparency. Like you can't have an informed electorate making 
you know, an informed vote if they don't have transparency about what their candidates are actually up to. Um, so I would just say that this is kind of one interest that fits not in really a law enforcement scheme or counterintelligence scheme, but I think is worth mentioning because it it is relevant to our being able to hold, you know, our leaders accountable or being able to judge them based on their uh, biases or willingness to put America, America's interests, you know, first. I think that's really important. And it's it's important not to lose sight of that stuff. You know, you're um, you know, you're we're both sort of legal analysts uh, and we spend time talking about these subjects. But and so I want to I always try to carefully delineate what we're talking about in terms of legal consequences versus not legal. But that doesn't mean it's not awfully important uh, whether or not the president of the United States has an interest in a foreign power or whether he's hiding things from the public. I will say that, you know, we've gotten to a point with Trump where I think people uh, a lot of folks, I would say, uh, understand the fact that he's not completely candid with the public uh, and um you know, there may even be some sense to which uh, people know that he has a, a particular affinity for Russia, although we don't necessarily know why. Um, but it is important for the public to know what the what the president is doing and what motivates him. Now, I'm trying to understand, though, is, is there any legal obligation that businesses have to share information about the business relationships they're building with foreign powers, in particular ones we consider to be an adversary? Because it sounds like it's not illegal. But it does sound as though it, it needs to be shared in some way. There can be issues if you're acting as an agent of a foreign power. That's what we saw in the in one of uh, Manafort's cases where if, for example, Felix Sater, I'm just going to use him as an example here, if he was actually acting on Russia's behalf um, and advancing Russia's interest, then perhaps he needed to register as a foreign agent. Wow. That would be one of them. Are there others uh, as well, Asha? No, I mean, though, I do believe that one of the articles for of impeachment for Nixon was misleading the public. Okay. So though it may not, you know, be a crime, you know, a violation of the U.S. code, um, you know, I guess put you know, put another way, would it have made a difference to how people voted if they had known this whole time? Like this guy is going to make a ton of money from Russia. Um, you know, other candidates might have been able to challenge him on that, uh, other um, Republican candidates in the primaries and stuff. So, you know, it, it's kind of this quasi area, which isn't, you know, a crime per se, but I think relevant. And there's some precedent that it's relevant to his fitness for the office, um, even now, you having know, misled at, at that degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would say... Um, you know, we, we've definitely are in a different age than we were in the night in the 1970s, That's unfortunately, <laughs> in terms of misleading the public. I think misleading the public is now, I'd say, a daily objective of. Uh, uh, a lot but, of... but Renato, I mean, that's what FEC disclosures are for. I mean, I do True. think misleading the public, just lying as a politician every day is different than material things that are relevant in an election. Right. So well, this is why the correct. Stormy Daniels payments and all of that could be campaign finance violations, because the idea is the public should know. I think that I think that's fair. And I will say this, too. It's clear that the Trump uh, camp thought that this stuff was important to hide because if you look at the charging document, there was discussions about, um, uh, you know, about um, there were certainly discussions about this this issue with all sorts of 
uh, folks, not just uh, Trump, and that's set forth, by the way, in the charging document that these discussions with Trump lasted until mid-2016 during the presidential campaign about Trump Moscow, but other Trump family members also were part of these conversations, and and yet Mm -hmm. no one came forward to disclose this to the public. Um, And in fact, when Michael Cohen moved his lips and lied to Congress many months ago, um, no one, it's not like Ivanka Trump or Eric Trump or Donald Trump Jr. or Donald Trump, the president of the United States, or their lawyers or anyone uh, rushed forward to correct the public record. So clearly there was some interest in keeping this stuff quiet. Correct. And on the counterintelligence national security side, keeping it a secret, remember, gives Russia leverage. Mm -hmm. So when they know that there is something that these people and Trump does not want out in the open and they have proof of it, that is something that they can hold over their heads. And this is true even if the deal didn't come to fruition. That is something that Russia continues to be able to have the upper hand on. That's right. Now, as to the second piece of what you're talking about, you meant, you know, you talked about those answers. I thought that was an excellent point. Um, But everyone should know, just from a a criminal law perspective, that to prove that Trump um, was guilty of a crime by making a false statement in those written uh, submissions to Mueller, Mueller would need to prove that, that Trump made those false submissions knowingly and willfully. And mm-hmm. that's important because the, the, the fact that Trump had written a question and answers allowed him to have them vetted by his attorneys. And it also allowed, um, I think, them to be very careful in how they worded them. And I think. Exactly. Yeah. So it kind of and that can work both ways. And I'll explain why. So, first of all, I, on Trump's side of it, I think one one way that will benefit him is CNN has reported that the answer said that they were to the best of his recollection, which is the sort of thing that Trump, if he was being interviewed, would not say before he made any statement. It's not like when you're being interviewed, you just start repeating that all the time. But... Um, you but, you know, having that in all those written answers, I think, could be helpful to him because he may be able to have a defense later where he says, um, look, I forgot the exact time of when this Moscow deal was going through. And, you know, frankly, I was running for president. My day was scheduled in 15 minute increments from morning till night. And I was bombarded and it was overwhelming. And I just couldn't keep track of everything. And, you know, that's why other people were running my business affairs for the most part and so on. Now, I'm not saying that's that's true or false, but I'm saying that would be a defense. One one thing that would hurt the Trump camp, though, however, I would say is this. The fact that there are written responses, which gives you all the time in the world to contemplate them and have all these attorneys involved, I think makes it in some ways that can help uh, Mueller because you could say on the, the prosecution side, well, look, you, you know, you had all these uh, this big legal team and all the time in the world. And this is the best you came up with is your answer after clearly having months to consider these issues. Um, so I think it could work both ways, but that would be the fault lines in terms of proving that. No, I I agree with you. And I think we also need to know how specific the question was worded and, you know, how how it was answered. Um, You know, the New York Times had a draft or had the wording of the original question that apparently Mueller wanted to ask, which was something like, have you had any communications with Michael Cohen, Felix Sater, you know, 
et cetera, about the Trump Tower, uh, Moscow. Um, and it was it kind of went on and, and, and laid out all these details, and they refused to – they rejected that formation of the question. So depending on what the question asked, did it ask about the timeline? Did it ask about who he was in communication with? Did he deny, you know, being in communication or with – uh, Cohen about that? Um, did he, you know, deny having ever made any uh, preliminary plans to travel to Russia, which is something else that's included in the information? That's really, I think, key to knowing how far from the truth his answers were and if they are defensible even with a wiggle room. Mm-hmm. Um, will we ever, I'm sorry, I'm just curious, will we ever see what President Trump's answers were to Mueller? We may or may not. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think we, we can't available. answer that question. I'm think that, I think it's something that probably a lot of listeners are curious about. Yeah. What, what do you think, Asha? I think once the investigation is complete, I can't see why a congressional committee couldn't subpoena it. Yeah, it's not a one thing that is uh, that is um, helpful there is it's not I think it's not a, it's not what's called grand jury material. So it's right. not secret. So, um, yeah, I mean, maybe that would be the way it would happen is that Congress would be demanding it. I certainly think there'd be a huge public interest in releasing it. And you've got to think that they were prepared by the Trump folks, knowing that the public might see them someday. So they, they were worded in the, the, the best way possible for them. In a bigly way? I mean, people are just going to look for grammar mm. alone or they'll be interested. Well, I would assume. <laughs> they're written by his attorneys. So, you know, I'm sure the grammar. He said he wrote them well, himself. Can I, just, yes. can I just add here, Renato, because I'll just say this on your show. I mean, it is kind of astonishing how poor the legal advice and frankly talent is for the president i mean definitely compared to what they're up against with Mueller. but you know sometimes i mean based on the things that have come out um and some of the steps that have been taken i I can't be so sure that you know it's been the best lawyering on the planet or anything well i will tell you that that would be an amazing segue uh to the second topic (laughs) that i want to discuss today because I am absolutely convinced that Rudy Giuliani and some of uh, Jay Sekulow need to retain their own counsel because they have ensnared themselves in very, very serious legal issues. Before I get to that point, um, which I think is worth discussing in detail because I have explained the same points to about 20-something journalists in the last 48 hours uh, or so, uh, and so I would love to get the the uh, a complete uh, accounting of that out here um, is that, you know, th- there's a couple interesting things about this Cohen uh, deal that uh, that we haven't discussed. I think one is it's a deal with Mueller. Uh, and, you know, this is the first time that we can really have it confirmed. And we know for sure that Cohen is cooperating with Mueller. He has already cooperated with Mueller. It says in the in the plea agreement that he'd be continuing his cooperation with with Mueller and that he is getting a cooperation deal, uh, which means something. Now, I will tell you, he's not getting a massive benefit out of this deal. Basically, they're just it's a it's a low uh, um, uh, it's a it's a sort of offense that's a, a fairly low level offense in terms of the punishment that he would get. But. They promised to tell the judge the extent of his cooperation so the judge could consider it. And I will just say that no one would get a cooperation deal if they were not, first of all, providing information that the prosecutor believed was truthful. 
and, and, and corroborated by other evidence. And second of all, information that the prosecutor thought was valuable towards making charges towards another person um, that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to make charges uh, on or dramatically improving, or I wouldn't say dramatically, I'd say significantly improving their chances of securing a conviction on a person they would have already been able to charge. So I think, uh, I think that tells you essentially Cohen is providing truth, what Mueller believes to be truthful and helpful information to him. And I think that's news. I think that's wor worth uh, noting. Yeah, no, I think I agree with all of what you just said. Okay, so let, let's. Uh, let, <laughs> what happens if you say it all, Renato? Okay, well, there uh, uh, you go. I, I, I like I, I, today is a, I, I one one more topic. I just you are so, so amped today. I am you're, amped you're, today. Your sleeves are rolled up. You're like, let's get at this. I am. I am. I will tell you. I, I am stuck in my crawl a little bit. I, I, before I came over here, I've we had a, a number of uh, interviews with journalists and so forth, and one of them had just talked to Rudy Giuliani. And Rudy Giuliani shared with this journalist, the story's public now, that he had obtained confidential information from the Mueller camp. And, um, you know, there, this was reported first by The New York Times that essentially that during Manafort's cooperation, that he was, um, had, through his lawyers, um, revealing information to Trump's lawyers. Well, what this what what happened here with the, this reporter asked Giuliani because I think the reporter had a relationship with him. Did you get confidential information about what Mueller was doing? And Julie said, Giuliani said, "Of course, absolutely." And this is all protected by attorney-client privilege. And the the journalist asked him, "Is this a, a illegal or a problem?" He's like, "No, it's it's totally fine. I would love to go to court on this." And I had to spend a lot of time walking the journalists through the issues here, and I'll walk them through for all of you. You can get some free legal um, advice or thoughts on this as if you were Rudy Giuliani. Um, but I will tell you, if Rudy, <laughs> Rudy Giuliani came to my office, what I would tell him is we would have a lot to talk about because there's a lot of different issues raised by this. So, you know, the conversation between Trump's lawyers and Manafort's lawyers is on its face, you know, Giuliani saying attorney-client privilege, where is the freaking client? There's no client in that conversation. So there's two attorneys talking to each other. So what you really have is an exception to the usual rule that an attorney, uh, that attorney-client uh, conversations that are transmitted to somebody else aren't privileged. And that exception is something called the joint interest doctrine, which is when two, or common interest doctrine, excuse me, that when two um, people are in the same legal proceeding and they have the same common interest that their lawyers can exchange information and they could exchange information without breaking privilege. And so before Manafort flipped, he had a common interest with Trump because they were both fighting Mueller. They were both on the same side. They wanted to take Mueller's you know, defense. They wanted to have the aggressive defense and take Mueller down. Once Manafort flipped, he no longer, he signed an agreement in, with, in front of a federal judge and told the judge, I'm fully, truthfully, and completely cooperating with Robert Mueller in any and all matters. Once he did that, he no longer had a common interest with Trump. Now, so can I can yeah. I play devil's advocate with you, please, please Renato? Mm -hmm. Because I, I love the thread that you wrote on this. Okay. What if, what if I'm, okay, I'm Rudy. Okay. Yep, great. Um, I say, well, the, the interests are not adverse. Because nothing, literally nothing Manafort can say or, or possibly testify about could implicate my client in anything. That is a in great, other words, mm -hmm. like, 
it's a lot of so, confidence. So there's, so there's there, there's yeah. But what if that's the what if that's the assertion? If that's the assertion, and that I think is essentially their assertion is, well, he wasn't essentially the assertion. The way they've put it is, he wasn't cooperating against Trump. Now, first of all, as a formal matter, he committed himself contractually to do so, and so I, I'm not. This is almost like a side point, but I'll just say that there's a lot of times people have information that could be used against Trump and could ultimately they could be a witness against Trump, even if it's not particularly incriminating. In other words, you know, Manafort was the chair of the campaign and had lots of information. You could imagine that if there was a legal case against Trump that Mueller brought, and I understand for a lot of reasons that may not happen, but if that did happen, Manafort would would potentially be a witness if he was still cooperating because you'd ask him, well, you know, where, what kind of records did Trump keep and what were his whereabouts and what email address did he use? And all of these, if he used one, you know, all of these sort of questions that would help bring the case forward, even if they're not incriminating, but putting that aside for the minute, and because essentially it's a raising the bar issue, which is they're saying, well, he's not adverse. And you know what? That's right. Maybe even if uh, even if let's say we take them at face value, he's not adverse. But that's not what the rule is. The rule is that you can't is not that you can share information with people you're not adverse to. It's that you can share p- information with people that you have a common and joint interest in in a legal proceeding. And it's hard for mm. me to understand in the context of that legal proceeding what common interest Paul Manafort has with Donald Trump because as to that legal proceeding, he's given up and surrendered and in uh, cast his lot with Bob Mueller. So maybe the, the argument would essentially have to be. He, so you're saying the interest would have to be aligned with Mueller's interest for that to be a plausible application of the rule. And we know that that's not the case. Right. Essentially, it would have to be that Trump and Mueller's interests are aligned. I don't even know right. how you could even do that. I mean, clearly they <laughs> wouldn't be. I mean, Bob Mueller would not agree with that. So it would have to be the, the best argument you could make if you want to if if if, if uh, Rudy Giuliani hired me would be, well, actually, as part of the legal proceeding, we had a secret strategy to get a pardon and to undermine to kind of end the whole legal that's effectively part even though it's not really part of the legal proceeding in some way um and so that was our joint interest it was a secret like plan that we had i i think it's really bizarre i don't think that um that i think her name is judge jackson in the dc case would find that very compelling it's very uh, cute um, and I, it's it's just sort of a silly argument that I, as a lawyer, would not want to make with a straight face to a federal judge. That's that's yeah. sort of my take on it. What's your take, Asha? <laughs> so then, your implication is if they if these lawyers are uh, conferring and sharing information, and if their interests they don't have a common interest, which and you're saying they did not once Manafort started working with with Mueller. That then these communications are not the rule doesn't the exception to the uh, rule doesn't apply and they are not privileged. Right. And, and therefore discoverable. Is that a- like abs- the, abs- the next step? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So if I was on the and it's funny when we had the earlier this week in the podcast with Joyce, I said if I had heard about these shenanigans because at the time, all we knew is there is Giuliani had made some intimation about this in a very vague way. We didn't know the details. Uh, and I, if I had read that article, I would have gone to um, Manafort's lawyer and said, you know what? 
I'm going to seek discovery of these communications that they're going on. So will you will you please reveal to me all the communications and certainly put in and, and explain to him all the potential consequences, which I haven't gotten to yet. Um, and we can talk about that as well. But all the potential implications that could really put the lawyer in a, in a bit of a trick bag. So I would think a, any defense lawyer presented with that threat would run for the hills. Um, certainly uh, any, any defense lawyer I knew practicing federal criminal law. And, and, and by the way, this really ties into what you were saying, Asha, which is Trump has lawyers who are not regularly practicing federal criminal law and handling these kind of cases. Now, he does seem to have some lawyers that we don't hear about these. There's a, a woman in, in New York who seemed very qualified who was working in the Cohen case. There's a couple uh, of lawyers in Florida we never hear about. They actually seem to be qualified to handle a case like this. But people like Giuliani, <laughs> which is probably why we never hear, which is probably why we never hear about them. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe they were saying things that no one w- w- that they wouldn't want to hear. But but Sek- um doesn't have any background in federal criminal law. Giuliani uh, has not been practicing for some time, and I think that's the kindest thing I could say in, the, in there, um, based on what I've seen. And so, you know, if if I was doing this sort of thing here in Chicago. You know, I know everybody in the federal criminal bar here, and if I pulled a shenanigan like this, everyone would know about it. I would never get a deal for my clients ever again. Uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office would want to deal with me. Other lawyers would be very suspicious of dealing with me. So, uh, you know, maybe these guys, because they don't know what they're doing, uh, they just are, and they don't care about their reputations, they're willing to take risks that other lawyers aren't willing to take. Yeah. And let's get to the practical part of this. So Manafort says he wants to cooperate with Mueller. Um, it turns out that he has lied. He lies to Mueller. Uh, it turns out, according to Giuliani, that he's been sh- his lawyers have been sharing information with Trump's team. For me, this I, I my my con- you know the logical conclusion to me is that they are a coming up with a shared story that they're gonna you know that Mueller, uh, Manafort is going to give to Mueller and, and be possibly be making a quid pro quo deal about a pardon for shielding the president from liability. I mean, this is speculation, but I'm just kind of like, well, what would be the point? Well, I agree. Because, Uh, you know, because otherwise, why, why even tell Mueller you're going to agree with him? Because as, I believe you point out on Twitter, or many other former prosecutors did, he has now put himself in a worse position, sentencing-wise, than he he would have had he just simply pleaded guilty without any cooperation deal. Exactly right, Ash. I mean, this makes no sense from a from a legal perspective. Um, the only way it makes sense is the, this possibility of a pardon. And I will also say, logically, there's no way there's no reason for him to share information with Trump's team unless it was meant to undermine Mueller and aid Trump. So, like, why else would he do it? Is he going to share what Bob Mueller was wearing in a meeting? I mean, what info right. is he going to share? Right. The cookie recipes that they discussed at the prosecutors. So, of course, they're, they're discussing information that, that hurts Mueller and helps Trump. So, you know, you certainly it certainly seems like potential obstruction of justice, for example. The problem to me, and I wrote that in that or in bribery, 
<laughs> or, or that, yeah, if there's a quid pro quo, my guess is it was, it, it, but I think, in, and, I, and I'm essentially that, that gets to the point I was going to make, which is it's just so hard to prove. My guess is these yeah. conversations weren't written. They're very worded very carefully and vaguely. Um, and so it's just very difficult to prove. But uh, to me, it seems like for sure potential criminal liability. But I will also say that there are a, a vast number of other issues implicated here because, first of all, if I'm if I'm right and a judge agrees with me as to um, join in, uh, in common interest doctrine, and 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 even if you don't, even if Giuliani isn't convinced of it, I think he could realize that maybe a judge might feel that way, or uh, and, or might agree with with people like me and and others who have there have been other people who have writing and saying the same thing. Then they've revealed their clients' confidences. Uh, to somebody and let them be discovered by Mueller. Like they've got malpractice uh, problems. They've got ethical, like disbarment. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like all these problems to deal with. And because they have those problems, they could get disqualified from the case potentially because their interests aren't completely aligned with their clients who have potential legal claims against them. And I would say on top of all of that, if Mueller could, I mean, there's a breach of contract here because Mueller, uh, Manafort signed a contract. I mean, if if Mueller, if you know, wanted to, he could try to say they induced a breach of the contract if he wanted to get to this. Uh, so there'd be civil liability there at the very least. So all in all, like, um, you know, a lot of problems and any smart lawyer exercising good judgment would not get anywhere near them, in my opinion. No, and I think, yeah, and any smart lawyer would have handled this way different than Giuliani has anyway uh, <laughs> from the beginning. So I'll just leave it right there. Ash, I have to say that Renato is, is really, he's buzzing with energy today with all of this news this week. And I have to ask, in your years in training with the FBI and your years in law school at Yale and, 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 work, and all the work that you've done, in your wildest dreams, could you even imagine something like this happening in the United States? No, Um, you know, the like, these are the kinds of things that in law school and, you know, Renato and I went to law school together would be hypothetical. Um, And, you know, those are the things that you present at the extreme that are never going to happen, but they test the boundaries of the law. And I think the scary part right now is that those hypotheticals are actual legal questions right now that we are facing the, you know, we're, we're facing the stuff that is is meant to be beyond the pale. Um, would you agree with that, Renato? I, I agree with that, too. I mean, all of this is stuff that I hadn't considered. Uh, I didn't even, you know, this whole fact pattern we talked about a minute ago that was getting me all jazzed up. <laughs> I had never considered that fact pattern as, like, a possibility when I was a federal prosecutor. It does. It, it, it seems as like, like the, the pathways of your brain are trying to figure out how this all even connects. <laughs> I can see it happening in front of my eyes. No, but it's a you know it's a law professor's dream because now for their exams they can you know go crazy. But yeah, I mean just think about the kinds of things that we're talking about. Like can the president pardon himself? I mean, <laughs> like what? You know, <laughs> I mean it's just it's kind of dumb. Like you're just like we have entered the world of stupid. 
I agree. And I will tell you, and one thing, by the way, I, I really love about uh, reading you are on Twitter and hearing you, you know, your commentary, because I watch your commentary either on CNN or on the clips that you helpfully uh, post um, from time to time, is you just kind of take a step back and help us see the bigger picture here. Because, you know, <laughs> I, I'll tell you, Asha, you know, it's sometimes, you know, like just at the front of the show when you're talking about what this means for our democracy, um, or here, we were just like, you know, this is all kind of Looney Tunes. Uh, it is. It's, it's so silly. Um, and the reason, I mean, the, I, the reason that it takes, sometimes takes me a while to even get through all of these problems, and I apologize for talking so much a moment ago about them, is because there are so many and it's so bizarre. It, it really They're is. They're so absurd. Yeah, they are like, you know, in law school, they, what professors do is they create an exam called an issue spotter where they put together a bunch of, you know, completely improbable facts together, you know, some scenario, and then you're supposed to figure out uh, what the law is. And basically, we are living in an issue spotter every single day. An issue spotter. Where <laughs> issue spotter, yeah. Okay. It's like, yeah, so like a tort issue spotter would be, you know, Joe, you know, woke up, he walked out the front door, the uh, lamp over his front porch, you know, fell on top of his head, you know, he lost consciousness, but then he went ahead and got in the car, he tried to drive, he passed out, he ran over three people, like, I mean, so then all these things, like, you know, uh, catastrophes happen, this goes on for two pages, you know, by the end, like, five people in the hospital, two people are dead, a, a you know, cars blown up or whatever, and then you have to identify who can sue whom for what. Only and I, only I feel like Americans are the pedestrians in the situation, <laughs> and we've all been hit by the president. <laughs> yeah, so basically that's it. Like, you know, every day we're dealing with, like, ten catastrophes, and then we're trying to sort through uh, the legal morass that it creates. I exactly exactly and um, I um, should say in, in another sort of legal morass that you and I spoke about um, a, was a few weeks ago on this podcast a couple weeks ago I don't even can't can't even oh the Whitaker Mr. Whitaker uh, our acting attorney general uh, uh, CNN reported shortly before this recording that uh, he was aware of the Cohen plea agreement before it was finalized so what do you think about that well, I think, in my opinion, there's good news and bad news. Oh, no. So the good news, yeah, the good news is, I'm not surprised, he is overseeing the investigation. And he is going to know and have to approve of, frankly, any significant legal step. So um, my sense is that he probably not only was, you know, briefed on it and knew about it, but probably, I'm guessing rubber stamped it, um, at least, you know, if this is considered a significant step. And as I had mentioned to Renato in that podcast, I said, you know, I think that the wheels of justice are in motion, and I don't think Whitaker can stop it. Um, this has taken on a life of its own. It's going to go on, and he is going to have to choose to actively obstruct justice to make it stop. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing by the fact that this went forward. I think the bad news is that to the extent that the president thought Whitaker might be able to stop it and is going to hear reports that he knew about this and didn't, he's going to lose his mind. And, you know, his sense of control is slipping. He's going to get more unhinged and he's going to start doing 
stupider and stupider things. Um, and that could include trying to fire Mueller or pardoning people, you know, whatever. I mean, basically in the issue spotter, he's going to start creating more catastrophes um, that we're going to have to sort through. But I, I think that he is going to become very unhinged as a result of not being in control. So, well, I've got to say, um, it, it, you know, the first part of it, I, I actually, I'm going to give you uh, award a gold star because I mean, she's the professor, <laughs> but I'm awarding her a gold star because during our last conversation about Whitaker, she was, a, I would call it, say, the Whitaker optimist. Oh, really? And I was the Whitaker uh -huh. pessimist. <laughs> and yep. uh, so I'll give you kudos because uh, Whitaker, as you uh, believed would be the case, did not, um, was not able to or did not. Um, get in the way of this happening today. But of course, what we don't know is whether or not he tipped up, uh, tipped off Trump or his lawyers in advance. Um, right. You know, there's that issue. Um, I will say, you know, there was a promise that was made that by Whitaker or, or that he was going to submit to the ethical uh, guidance of the uh, Justice Department. And now the Justice Department refuses to comment on that matter. And there's no answer one way or the other about what that advice was or what he's doing. Um, no answer as to whether he actually carried forward and, and sought that advice. So, um, you know, the, you know, it remains to be seen what his effect will be when Trump does all the things that you, uh, you know, suggested he very, he very, well, very well might. <laughs> you know, when he canceled his uh, meeting with Putin today um, by tweet, I don't know if you you mm -hmm. saw that. Um, it was a very normally worded, normally capitalized tweet. And, you know, I, I just imagine the scenario on Air Force One where, you know, five people wrestled his phone away from him and basically tweeted that, you know, for him that he wasn't going to be meeting with um, with Putin. And I, I just think that that's going to be a lot of what's happening in the next few weeks is that he's going to basically be put in a straitjacket because they're going to be afraid of what he's going to do. <laughs> Now he's just promoting a book, apparently. That's what he's done in the last uh, 20 minutes or so is uh, a book about him and the economics of uh, the oh, Trump administration. Okay. That's all he's doing right now. <laughs> all right. Yeah, so there you go. So I have a question. You guys were talking about how, uh, you know, the thing that tripped up Cohen about you know, in regards to lying to Congress was that he said that the meetings ended in January of 2016 when, in fact, they went through the summer leading up to the convention. How much cover could Donald Trump have if he just says, I don't remember, I didn't know, it was, it, as you mentioned, uh, Renato, that uh, someone else was handling it? How, I mean, you know, it, it, does it, do you have to have records that prove that, you know, he signed off on a meeting or is, is as his attorney, is, is he acting in uh, Donald Trump's stead? What does that look like legally? Well, can I jump in here? Yeah, sure, of course, Sasha. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, you know, I think, I think where it's going to be hard, Patty, is the level at which these negotiations were happening. Like I said, these were basically with intermediaries between Trump and President Putin. Um, not only that, but Michael Cohen is willing to, you know, or has already gone on the record that he had multiple conversations with Trump. And as uh, Renato mentioned earlier, even with members of Trump's family, um, I, you know, I think at some point you, we get to even if we don't have proof, like would a reasonable person believe that someone just wouldn't remember a deal that they were making with President Putin. Yeah, that seems significant. Mm -hmm. 
It really does. Yeah. So plead, he might plead ignorance as he always does, but that might not necessarily hold any water. Yes. Hey, uh, now here, Renato, there's a question that someone has about Don Jr., and they're asking, could the reason Don Jr. hasn't been indicted is his lawyers are negotiating a plea deal or more likely a timing issue because once he's indicted, the president will probably go ballistic? <laughs> That's the tweet. You I don't know. You know, it's interesting. I will say this. I don't know whether Don Jr. will ever get indicted. I haven't seen any evidence one way or another to know. I will say that today's move uh, with Michael Cohen makes it more likely to me that you may see a Trump Jr. indictment because it shows that Mueller is willing to charge people for lying to Congress about these subjects. He views that as within the scope of his investigation, and it appears Acting Attorney General Whitaker agrees. And so given that, um, you know, one of the key sources of potential liability that Trump Jr. has that we know about is potential false statements to Congress. So that, if I was looking at a potential charge for Trump Jr., that's what I would be looking for. So I don't know anything about the timing of that or where they're at in that process, but it's it's certainly a possible a possibility. I know we've talked a lot about the joint defense agreement. Is it possible, and maybe we've covered this, uh, but is it possible Mueller allowed that in order to let them set, like trap them? No, for a lot of reasons. I don't think that's 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 the case. Okay. First of all, because essentially Mueller, your the 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 idea is that the, the this this theory is that Mueller knew in advance that the whole a cooperation agreement was a sham, mm -hmm. and essentially um, let the judge think and everyone and and sign this false agreement, knowing that it was all really. Uh, uh, a sham from the beginning. And I don't think he would do that with the court. I also think federal prosecutors don't engage in those sort of uh, shenanigans. Maybe, maybe they do in the movies, but they don't in real life. I think this is an interesting point from somebody uh, from Chrono says, uh, where would we be today if it weren't for Stormy Daniels and Michael Avenatti coming forward and, and blowing this up as far as Cohen goes? Right? How much longer might that have taken? If it weren't for that, the short answer is we don't know. We don't know. I mean, that, that's the answer. I mean, for all we knew, the FBI was already looking at that stuff. Right. I just don't know. So um, one thing that I noticed there are some questions about um, and I think would be a useful topic to throw in here before you get to more questions, Patty, because I may have caused a lot of these questions is the um, search warrants that were executed at the offices of Alderman Ed Burke today. So I saw that that was happening on Twitter. There is a Chicago Sun-Times reporter who noted what was happening and the, the FBI coming to search those offices. And I tweeted about it. It just noted the fact that uh, Alderman uh, Burke's law, uh, Mar Alderman Burke and his law firm represented uh, the, the Trump organization and Trump businesses for 12 years. And that started like this massive viral discussion. Um, so what does this mean? I, there's a bunch of questions along that line. And I will just say as a person who has been in Ch Chicago for a lot of my life, um, Alderman Ed Burke has been around since before I was born. 1969. He's been in that office. Exactly. So I, I, you know, I'm 42, uh, and, and he's older, you know, he's, he's been in office longer than that. He's got all sorts of things that he's done. He's a very powerful and important person here. Chief financial officer for the, the, uh, city council. Okay. He holds our purse strings. Okay, so yeah. he's very, you know, very important person. There's all sorts of things that the feds could be looking at him for. I don't know what they're looking for. It may be a complete coincidence this happened the same day that Cohen pled guilty. What I will say is this. There's one thing I could say pretty confidently. If 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 Ed Burke ever got to a point where he pled guilty and wanted to cooperate with the feds, 
he would certainly have information about Donald Trump's business dealings that he could talk about. Whether he knows about criminal behavior, I don't know, but he certainly you know, would know a lot. And the question would be, what could he share that would be outside of attorney-client privilege? But it's an interesting thing. It's something worth noting. Uh, I don't know what it means beyond that. And so all, all the questions I'm going to head off, any questions that we well, throw out from, from Twitter on well, that. Well, Asha, you have, to, I mean, you have to understand from Chicago, well, one, we're not all that surprised when a city official has their office raided by the FBI. <laughs> But um, yeah. at the same day, not just Alderman Burke, but also the Deutsche Bank was uh, was also raided. So I mean, like, yep. there's a, it it does seem a little coincidental, mm-hmm. don't you think? Yeah, I mean, it, it you know maybe it's coincidental, maybe it's strategy. I do think, you know, one way or the other, my sense is that moving forward, we're going to see things move a little bit faster. I mean, I feel like Mueller is getting a little more aggressive, maybe partly because now he has um, Trump's answers and can just move forward with kind of the rest of the investigation. Um, so that's just my take. Well, let's let's turn now. Do you have some questions from the uh, re- I You know, I, I there's so many questions from the from your followers that I don't even know where to begin. But I, I guess one of the questions that people have, and I know you addressed this, was the dangling of the the pardon yesterday when President Trump said it wasn't necessarily off the table. You were mentioning that that's something that can be criminal because pardoning him might not be criminal, but offering it in exchange for something, as you mentioned before, would be criminal. But you know, people have so many questions about that. They also want to know if it's possible that promises were based on the possibility that Trump would win, obviously. So that's the relationship with Russia that people want to know. It's not just that Trump is now saying, oh, you know, I was covering my ass because I, you know, if I didn't win the presidency, I still wanted to have all these real estate deals, right? But so how entrenched is the relationship between President Trump and Russia? You know, is people want to know about laundering money for the oligarchs. They want to know about, you mm-hmm. know, or Russia's involvement here when it comes to our infrastructure and other businesses. All right. That's so, a lot. Yeah. Since I'm you've trying asked to so much, all of the, uh, since, uh, since you've asked all of those questions, I'm going to throw them to Asha because yeah. that's, she's so <laughs> quick to answer all of them. Okay. So I'll try to, I'll try to go through uh, them one by one um, and, and quickly. Uh, so the pardon, the difference between a pardon and a dangle of a pardon um, is a couple of things. Uh, one is the act itself, right? So a pardon is you're actually, you know, absolving someone of their guilt. Um, that is what the purpose is. Um, the dangle, though, isn't doing that. It's offering it up um, kind of as an enticement um, to get, you know, the person to behave or, or incentivize them to do something. And so... You're not actually absolving them for, uh, of, of guilt. You're basically trying to get something in exchange. It's a, it's a self-interested motivation. Um, and it starts to look, depending on how such a dangle takes place, um, it could even amount to bribery. So they are just two different things. And I think uh, there are, you know, have been a few legal scholars who've written on this, um, just the way that you, if you try to use your ability uh, your power as president to do something in exchange for someone else giving you something, you know, is bribery. So with this, uh, it doesn't matter that you have the power to do it. You know, president can't promise to go to war with another country if somebody pays him a million dollars, even just because, you know, he's a president and can go to war does not make that a legal act. So that's what I would say about the pardon power. 
Um, as far as I wasn't really clear on what the well, people uh, want, exact. Yeah, Russia. I, I think that just in a broader picture about what the implications are, you know, when it because Trump is trying to say that he just had these business interests and he was just trying to protect himself financially in case he didn't win the presidency. But it does seem as though they're trying to cover these up. What kind of, you know, how deep are we with Russia, not just with Trump, but in general as a country when it comes to business interests, maybe even our infrastructure? That's one of the tweets that we got. I don't know. I mean, gotcha. um, you know, that's, I'm not actually really sure how to answer that question. I mean, I don't think as a country we're particularly indebted to Russia in the same way that, for example, you know, countries like Germany, which get a lot of their um, gas from Russia, you know, might have financial interest that that, that is harder to um, extricate from. I don't think we're in that kind of position as a country. As far as Trump, um, the question is, you know, you know, he remembers that throughout the campaign and, and even after he became president, he kept reiterating that he had zero business in Russia and, and and never had any interest or, you know, he denied all of this. Obviously, that's now we know now that's a complete lie. So the question is, what else is going on? What what else don't we know about? And we haven't seen his tax returns. We don't know if he is uh, in debt. Uh, we don't know what his activities have been. Um, if you watch the movie Active Measures, by the way, I'm just going to plug this documentary. Um, it actually goes into a lot of detail about the uh, Trump organization and uh, it's the fact that Russian oligarchs have, you know, basically bought a lot of his condos. Um, and, you know, it goes from there. So that's something that your your listeners can can go to. And I wasn't Excellent. sure what the last question was. No, I, I think that actually helps out a lot. I, 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 it does. And I will point out as somebody who did watch that documentary, uh, Asha Rangapa is very prominently featured in it. <laughs> and, I don't know about that. I thought you were great. Um, and and I, it was a moment where I got to point and say, oh, I know that person. Um, <laughs> um, well, look, thank you so much for joining us, Asha. It, you were a fantastic as usual. Thank you. And, and I know people are going to, you know, really enjoy this podcast. So thank you so much. Good. Thank you. And uh, I look forward to listening to it when it comes out. Thank you. You both made me smarter today. All right. Okay. <laughs> thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. I'm Francis Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. 
All we do is give. 